the idiom to go to bat for someone. It means to take the side of support or defend. The term originated in baseball. It simply meant to substitute for another batter, to go to bat for them. Sometimes this person is referred to as the pinch hitter. They're placed in to hit because the manager believes the person he's placing in has a better opportunity to hit the ball than the person that was in the lineup. It's the idea of helping one's team in this way that's been transferred to this term that's for more general use. If I were to use it in a way, I could say, well, Jim always go to, goes to bat for his employees because he wants them to be treated fairly. So Jim is going to them, trying to help. We're working through our series, The Heart of Christ. I want to remind you, if, if you're here this morning, you have not grabbed one of the books back there. Those are free of charge. Um, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. You can take one of those um, and, and read that. That's the promise I made our church do when I first handed them out. You have to take it and actually read it. It's not there to just sit on a shelf. Uh, but those are there free uh, for you to use if you would like. Uh, this morning, we're going to be diving into the book of Hebrews. We're going to start in Hebrews chapter 12, and, and then we're going to go back to Hebrews chapter 4, but open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, and I'm going to give us a little bit of context this morning, because uh, the book of Hebrews, the author is very knowledgeable, knowledgeable about the Jewish faith. We don't know, there, there's many ideas of who the author was, some think it may have been Paul um, as the author, but he was very knowledgeable about Jewish faith and Hebrew traditions, and the focus of the book is how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and the sacrificial system that was in place in the Old Testament. God had given the nation priests to sacrifice on behalf of the people to God to pay for their sin. And the main theme of the book is that Jesus is our great high priest. This title is only attributable to Jesus alone. He is our great high priest. Rather than a priest who interceded in the tabernacle or the temple, we have a priest who intercedes for us in direct proximity to the Father. He is in the very throne room of God. He fully and sufficiently filled the role of the high priest to offer a once and for all sacrifice for our sinfulness. That sacrifice was his own body placed upon the cross.
one of the ways that the book of Hebrews talks about his death, burial, and resurrection is talking about the fulfillment of all that we would read in the Old Testament. One of the ways that is seen, he talks about it in the book of Hebrews, is that Jesus sits down at the right hand of God, showing the fulfillment of that. Hebrews 12, I think I've given you enough time to get there, to look in your your appendix to find where Hebrews is at. Hebrews 12, verse 1. The author writes, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As we begin to dive into this passage this morning, the first word, at least in in the ESV that I am reading in in verse 1 of chapter 12, is therefore. When there is a therefore, you should always know what it's there for, right? This one is probably one of the easiest ones because he gives you the context. He says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, what are the cloud of witnesses? Back in chapter 11, it's the hall of faith. The author is talking about all of the ones who believed in God, who by faith did all of these actions. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Not just those witnesses, but those witnesses were surrounded by people who were watching their faith. Same for us. We're surrounded by people who are watching our faith. So he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. You see, the focus of this text... Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 is for us to focus on Jesus Christ. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He says, what do we need to do? He gives a sports analogy of, of running. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, our Christian life. A runner, what do they wear? Like clothes, right? Clothes that don't give wind resistance. They don't say, eh, I'm going I'm to run a race. I think I should probably carry this stool with me and maybe this speaker. This will at least let people know I'm coming. They don't do that, do they? Why? Because people would know they're in last place. If I'm going to run a race, I want every advantage I can get. Let us throw aside, the author says, the sin that so easily entangles. I'm not going to wear a dress if I'm running a race. Why? Because they're not that great to run in, I don't think. I, I don't 
never put one on, but I'm guessing, ladies, probably not that easy to run in a dress. Secondly, the wind's going to catch them. It's like wearing a sail. So let us lay aside all of this. Why? So we can run the race with endurance, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We took the the girls um, this last Wednesday roller skating. They had something at the the roller skate place in Warsaw, so we went over there with, with a group and... It's the first time the girls, they have roller skates at home, but they've never been at a roller skating rink, and they've never actually had the roller skates on their feet. And so it was kind of their first time of going around, and Ellie, Ellie kind of went around once by herself, just kind of holding on to the edge and, and going as much as she could. She was trying to do it a lot, but the problem with Ellie was every time she'd do this, she kind of just went wherever her skates went, Right? She just went in the direction of her skates, and so I helped her. I, I walked around. I just had my shoes on. I wasn't putting skates on. Uh, that's not me. So, so I'm walking around, and, and I realize I, I start holding her by her hands and going this way. And she was going straight then. Why? Because she was focused on what was in front of her. She wasn't getting distracted by where her wheels are taking her, what's happening. That's what we're supposed to be doing with Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We're supposed to be focused wholly on Him. Yes, there's a lot of distractions. There's a lot of worries that can happen. But we're supposed to be focused as, on Jesus as our example. And as our example, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith... It says in this text, he endured the cross, he despised its shame, and is seated at God's right hand. He is the founder, he is the author of our faith through enduring the cross, through despising its shame, and through being seated at God's right hand, showing its completion. That's the what of what Jesus did. We're given the answer to the question of what here this morning. But we're also given the answer to the why as well. Did you see that in the text? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him. The joy. The joy of what? He endured the cross, he despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. All for the joy. It was for the joy that Jesus endured the cross. It was for joy that he was ridiculed, beaten, spat upon, and he was hung on a cross to die. Those things were not... The joy, but it was for joy. It was for joy that Jesus endured the cross. What was Jesus' joy? What is Jesus' joy? What brings Jesus' joy? I think in order to get the answer to that question that's coming out of this text, 
I can take you to various other ones. One is Luke chapter 15. Jesus is telling a parable about a hundred sheep, a man who owns these sheep, and 99 of them are safe, but one of them has wandered off. One of them has gotten lost, and Jesus said, the man will go after that one. Once he finds that one, Jesus says this in Luke 15, verse 7, just so I tell you, there will be more joy. Everybody say that word, joy. There will be more joy in heaven over what? One sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Remember, biblically, there is no one righteous, no, not one. We're all in need of that, repentance. But Jesus says there will be more joy in heaven heaven. There's joy in heaven over those who are drawn to salvation. They realize their sinfulness. They repent. They bring themselves back into a relationship with God. Jesus' joy is when sinners come back to a relationship with God. Jesus' joy was to bring sinners back into that relationship. It was the joy that was set before him. It was the joy of why he endured. It was the joy of why he suffered. This can go back all the way to when Jesus was born. Remember the angels are proclaiming to the shepherds and they say this, and the angels said to them, fear not. Always angels. Angels, their first words are always fear not. Why? Because I think they were pretty scary. Angels said, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. What is the joy? Well, the Messiah has come. He's been born, but he's more than that. He's a savior. He's here to save you from your sins. Good news. That's what the gospel means. Good news of great joy. The savior has come. At the end of Jesus' life, he's praying, it's, it's his prayer, and he says this, but now I am coming to you, and he's talking to his father, now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. What is the joy that could be fulfilled in us? The salvation that he is providing or about to provide at this point on the cross. The fact that we can have a relationship with him. Ortland quotes Thomas Goodwin in his book. And in this quote by Thomas Goodwin, Goodwin writes, Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness, and glory are increased and enlarged by his showing grace and mercy in pardoning, relieving, and comforting his members here on earth. 
Dane Ortland goes on to say, when you come to Christ for mercy and love and help in your anguish and perplexity and sinfulness, you are going with the flow of his own deepest wishes, not against them. You're going with the flow of Christ's own wishes. He died to set you free of your sinfulness. His joy comes in saving people from their sins. To say it another way, Jesus has gone to bat for us in our sinfulness. When all we could do is step up to the plate and strike out, he steps up and hits the home run. He puts into action the sacrifice he has made for sin. When he gets to do that, because a sinner is coming and repenting of their sin, it brings Jesus great, great joy. So I think that leads us logically to ask, are there areas in our lives where God is asking us to repent? Is there an area in your life where God is asking you to repent of something? Why? Because when you repent of that, repentance means you're saying, I believe that this is true about this, that this is a sin, that I'm going against God's character and his will, and I'm no longer going to do that. When you do that, Christ's sacrifice, his blood is covering over that. He's washing you pure, and that brings him great joy. Frank Gabeline comments and says this, The meaning is that Jesus went to the cross because of the joy it would bring. He let, looked right through the cross, through all of the pain, through all of the agony, through all of the suffering, to the coming joy, the joy of bringing salvation to those he loves. It was for joy, it is for joy that Jesus endured the cross. Secondly, we're going to flip back to Hebrews chapter 4. I'm going to pick up in verse 14. So we talked about the author of Hebrews is, is talking about this great high priest, the one who came and sacrificed once and for all time. Jesus Christ says in verse 14 of chapter 4, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... He's clarifying, make sure you know this, it's Jesus I'm talking about. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The author says, Jesus is our great high priest. He is the only great high priest because he made the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. And his ultimate sacrifice is not limited to him going into a temple and once a year 
having to make a sacrifice for sin. His sacrifice was enough that it paid for sin once and for all. It's also not the same as an earthly priest going into a temple where God's, God only temporarily dwelled at times. But Jesus has direct, immediate, eternal access to the Heavenly Father. The author writes, he passed through the heavens. He didn't just pass through the different layers of the tabernacle or the different layers of the temple into the Holy of Holies. He has direct access to God. He is the Son of God. He is deity. Paul makes this comment in Colossians 2.9. For in him, for in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is not just God, but he is in bodily form man. The whole fullness of Jesus' deity was poured out into the baby that the angels declared was born. He is both fully God and fully man. As a man, he experienced things like hunger, thirst, pain, grief, sorrow, sadness, disappointments, temptation, so the author writes, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. No, we have one who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because in every respect he has been tempted as we are, yet he was without sin. So in revealing Jesus' heart, it was to sympathize that Jesus became human. It was for joy that he endured the cross. It was to sympathize that Jesus became human. Philippians 2 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he was deity, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He was both fully God and fully man. How does that work? I wish I could give you the simple equation. I wish I could explain it logically. This is one of those God things that he is so much more profound, so much farther beyond our minds that it's hard to grasp. 
but he was both fully God and fully man. The one thing, however, that Jesus did not feel was what it was like to sin. He never felt what it was like to go against God's will or God's character or God's likeness. However, he does know what it's like to feel all of the consequences of sin forever placed upon him at one time when he was on the cross. He took our sins, those who believe in him, upon himself on the cross. He didn't receive any of the temporary gratification of sinfulness. Rather, he faced the excruciating penalty for all sin upon himself. As I read through commentaries this week, it was interesting, so many of them covered the same thing, and that was this, that Jesus knows what temptation is to its fullest extent because he never gave in to temptation. He knows what it's like to fully resist temptation because he never gave in to temptation. He understands the enticement and attraction of sin, yet he has the capability to withstand these to their greatest extent. In other words, there's no one else in history who understands temptation like Jesus. No one who understands the full pressure of temptation. Not only that, there's no one who understands the suffering of sin like Jesus. He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. But he suffered the penalty of sinfulness in order to have victory and triumph over the ultimate consequence of death. The consequence that sin has of death, he came to overcome that, to have victory. We sing, oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me. Right? We have victory. He has victory over sin and death. In the book of Revelation, we read that he holds the keys to death and Hades. So Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Not only does he sympathize, but that sympathy also, he feels that. He feels what we are going through. He's with us even in our darkest times and they all, uh, David writes in Psalm 23 even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death I will fear no evil for you are with me 
Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Even in our darkest times, in our hardest moments, Jesus is right there with us. Dane Ortland makes this comment. He says, in our pain, Jesus is pained. In our suffering, he feels the suffering as his own, even though it isn't. Not that his invincible divinity is threatened, but in the sense that his heart is feelingly drawn into our distress. Because he knows what it's like to be in your place. It's much like when we nurse a part of our body because it's in pain. Missy's here this morning. I wasn't planning on using anyone as an example, but she has the crutches. She was talking. What? Oh. <laughs> well, when you're on crutches, what are you doing? You're nursing that one part of your body, the part that's in pain. Those of you that use canes. You're, you're nursing that part of your body. It, it, I broke my arm one time when I was younger. I was about 13 or 14. I, I broke my arm. What happened? Well, it went in a cast and I didn't use it for much. You nurse that part of your body. We are the body of Christ. And when we are hurting... He recognizes that. He sympathizes with us. He cares for us. He doesn't just say, oh, you broke your ankle, I don't care. We're just going to keep going along without anything. No. He says, we're gonna, I'm going to focus on that. We're going to take care of that. We're going to make sure that heals up correctly. Jesus sympathizes with us. Jesus goes to bat for us in the depths and difficulties of our humanity. Not only does he go to bat for us, but we receive mercy, verse 16, the end. We may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We're going to receive his mercy and grace. Warren Wiersbe says this, mercy means that God does not give us what we do deserve. Mercy, we don't get the punishment we do deserve. Grace means that he gives us what we do not deserve. He gives us forgiveness. He gives us his love that's just poured out. We don't deserve those things. But he holds back the things we do deserve. He gives us his mercy and grace to help us in our times of need as we're going through these difficulties whether it's hardships difficulties 
sins, temptations in our lives. I was just reminded of the verse we looked at a couple weeks ago, Matthew chapter 11. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. When you're going through these difficult times, you have to come to Him. If you're struggling with sinfulness, addictions, struggles, come to Him. If you want forgiveness, come to Him. Why? Because that brings Him joy. Jesus is going to be burdened down by, by me if I, if I dump everything on him. No. It's not a burden to him. It brings him joy. It is why he died. He died to pay the penalty for that sin that you just committed. Go to him and ask for forgiveness. That brings him joy. So as we conclude this morning, there's a couple of responses. I think the first is Jesus is welcoming you to come to him in prayer of repentance. It brings him joy. He finds joy in your repentance. Secondly, Jesus welcomes you to bring him in confidence boldly your burdens, your struggles. No matter what we're facing, we can come to him, and Dane says this in his book, that sorrow that feels so isolating, whatever that is, maybe you feel alone. Sin has its way of doing that to us. It calls us to isolation. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden, what's the first thing they did? They went and hid. It's isolating. Sin is isolating. That sorrow, losing a loved one, that pain you're experiencing, that grief can be isolating. The struggles you go through on a day-to-day -day basis, sometimes they feel like, oh man, that must just be unique to me. Nobody else on earth experiences that. Well, it was endured by him in the past and is now shouldered by him in the present. There's something freeing about knowing that someone else feels like you do. Knowing that someone else is going through what you're going through. I remember I worked at Kmart for a while, uh, the end of high school, before I went to college. Um, and I'd worked there for a couple of years, and, and one, one year, 
they decided that we were going to get together at like one Kmart. Like all of the managers of like, let's say the electronics department, we're all going to kind of, in this area, we're all going to congregate and meet together at this one Kmart. And so all these managers, we all drove to the one Kmart, we meet and we begin talking. And it's like, you go through this too? You have this happen in your store? You have a customer like that? We began realizing that we weren't alone in what we were going through. It made it feel not so heavy. It made the burden not feel so burdensome. It made the difficulty seem not so difficult. We're not alone in what we're going through because Jesus endured this in the past. He sympathizes with us in our weaknesses. We're just called to come to him. Would you pray with me? Father, it's hard to imagine that you were able to look through the agony of the cross with the purpose of joy. You were able to look through the pain, the sorrow of separation from your father, the weight of sinfulness being placed upon you, but you knew the ultimate purpose. You knew the joy that was set before you. Father, maybe there's somebody here today that hasn't experienced that joy that you provide through salvation. The joy of having sins removed and wiped clean. The joy of having an eternal future in heaven. The hope of eternity. Eternal joy for the joy set before Him. God, Help us as we go through our Christians' lives to not look at the current circumstance or the current difficulty, but look at the joy. <coughs> look at the joy that is before us, made possible through your <coughs> death, burial, and resurrection. Father, may we... Seek you for forgiveness, because that's what brings you joy. Father, may we come to you when we're burdened, because you know what it's like. You've been there through the hardships, through the difficulties. You know what feelings we're experiencing. You relate to us because you are God in flesh. You are deity, you are man. 
but you experienced as a man the things that we go through. May it bring comfort to us to know that the experiences we're experiencing now, you have passed through. You have journeyed already. God, help us to lay those at your feet. Help us to place those on you. And God, may we feel your sympathy. May we feel that closeness to you as we're walking through difficult times of life, dark times of life, troubling times of life. God, I thank you for your son who endured the cross for joy. I thank you that he became man and sympathizes with the things that we've gone through in our lives. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.